Part three of The Characters of Theophrastus by Theophrastus. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three. Twenty one. The Gross Man. Grossness is such neglect of one's person as gives offence to others. The gross man is one who goes about with an eczema, or white eruption, or diseased nails, and says that these are congenital ailments, for his father had them, and his grandfather too, and it would be hard to foist an outsider upon their family. He's very apt to have sores on his shins and bruises on his toes, and to neglect these things so that they grow worse. His armpits are hairy like an animal's for a long distance down his sides. His teeth are black and decayed. As he eats, he blows his nose with his fingers. As he talks, he drools, and has no sooner drunk wine than up it comes. After bathing, he uses rancid oil to anoint himself, and when he goes to the marketplace, he wears a thick tunic and a thin outer garment disfigured with spots of dirt. When his mother goes to consult the soothsayer, he utters words of evil omen, and when people pray and offer sacrifices to the gods, he lets the goblet fall, laughing, as though he had done something amusing. When there's playing on the flute, he alone of the company claps his hands, singing an accompaniment, and upbraiding the musician for stopping so soon. Often he tries to spit across the table, only to miss the mark and hit the butler. 22. The Boor Boorishness is ignorance of good form. The boor is the sort of man who takes a strong drink and then goes to the assembly. He insists that myrrh has not a whit sweeter smell than onions. His boots are too big for his feet, and he talks in a loud voice. He distrusts even friends and kinsmen, while his most important secrets are shared with his domestics, and he tells all the news of the assembly to his farmhands. Nothing awakens his admiration or startles him on the streets so much as the sight of an ox, an ass, or a goat, and then he stands agape in contemplation. He is the sort of man who snatches a bite from the pantry and drinks his liquor straight. He has clandestine talks with the cook and helps her grind the meal for his household. At breakfast he throws bits to the animals about the table. He answers the knock at the door himself and then whistles for his dog, takes him by the nose and says, Here's the keeper of my house and grounds. When a man offers him a coin, he declines it, saying it is too worn and takes another piece in its stead. After loaning a plough, basket, sickle, or sack, he goes after it, unable to sleep for thinking of it. When he goes to town, he inquires of any chance passer-by, What are hides selling for? What's the price of bacon? Does the celebration of new moon come today? Then he remarks he must go down the street and have his hair cut, and while in town must also run into the shop of Arceus and buy the bacon. He sings in the public baths and wears hobnailed boots. 23. The Penurious Man Penuriousness is the grudging of expense and is due to great love of money and little love of honor. The penurious man, after a victory on the tragic stage, sets up a wooden chaplet to Dionysius on which he inscribes his own name. If contributions from the public are asked for, he is silent or rises and quits the company. When he gives his daughter in marriage, he sells the sacrificial offerings, excepting the parts that belong by law to the priests. 
at the wedding he employs only servants who will eat at home as trierarch he takes the pilot's blankets and spreads them on deck for himself while he puts his own away he is the sort of man who keeps his children from school when a festival comes and makes excuses for them on the plea of ill health that he may avoid the fee for tuition when he goes to market he brings the meat home with him carrying the vegetables in the folds of his cloak he stays indoors when he sends his tunic to the cleaner if he catches sight of a friend coming towards him and soliciting contribution he sneaks off through a by-street and goes home by a roundabout way he employs no maid for his wife although she brought him a dowry but hires a child from the woman's market to accompany her on her errands he keeps his patched shoes until they are twice worn out saying they are still good and tough as horn when he gets up he dusts the house and makes the beds and when he sits down he lays aside the coat he is wearing in order to spare it twenty four the pompous man pompousness is contempt for everybody save oneself if you have urgent business the pompous man will tell you that he will meet you after dinner on his walk if he has done you a favor he reminds you of it when elected to office he declines saying under oath he has no leisure he is not disposed to make the first call on anybody tradesmen and hired men he orders to come to him by daybreak as he passes along the street he does not greet the men he meets he lowers his eyes and when it suits him raises them again if he entertains friends he does not dine with them but instructs some of his underlings to attend to the duties of entertainment he sends a messenger ahead when he makes a call to say that he approaches he allows no one to enter while he is at his oil rub his bath or his dinner when he is casting an account he instructs a slave to set down the items foot up the total and arrange it in a statement for him he does not write in a letter you would do me a favor but i want this done and i have sent for this and wish to have it and see to it that my orders are followed precisely and have this done immediately twenty five the braggart bragging is pretending to have excellences that one does not really possess the braggart is the man who stands on the wharf and tells the bystanders how much capital he has invested in ships at sea and tells how extensive is his business of loaning money and how much he has made and lost by different ventures as he talks thus magnificently he sends his slave to his banker where he has uh, exactly one shilling to his credit on a journey he imposes on his travelling companion by telling him that he once served with alexander and how intimate were their relations and how many jewelled cups he brought back from his campaigns as regards the asiatic artists he counts them better than those in europe and all this he tells you without having once set foot outside his native city he claims further to have three letters from antipater bidding him come to macedonia but he declares that though he has been guaranteed the privilege of exporting wood free of duty he has refused to go simply to avoid being suspected by his fellow-citizens of foreign leanings the macedonians he says in urging him so to come ought to have considered this point 
in time of famine he says his expenditures for the poor amounted to over five talents for he hadn't the heart to refuse when he's with strangers he often bids someone place the reckoning counters on the table and computing by six hundreds and by mine glibly mentioning the names of his pretended debtors he makes a total of twenty-four talents saying that the whole sum had gone for voluntary contributions and that too without including subscriptions for the navy or for other public objects at times he goes to the horse market where blooded stock is for sale and makes pretense of wanting to buy and stepping up to the block he hunts his clothes for two talents upbraiding his servant for coming along without any money though he lives in a rented house he represents it to those who do not know as the family homestead yet adds that he thinks of selling it as being too small for the proper entertainment of his friends twenty six the oligarch oligarchy is a love of power that clings tightly to personal advantage the oligarch rises in the people's councils when assistants to the archon are elected for the management of a fete and says these men must have absolute control and although others have suggested ten he insists that one is enough but he must be a man the only line of homer that stays in his memory is a crowd's rule is bad let there be one ruler he knows no other verse he is however an adept at such phrases as this we must hold a caucus and make our plans we must cut loose from mob and market we must throw aside the annoyance of petty office and of insult or honour at the masses whim we or they must rule the state at midday he goes out with his mantle thrown about him his hair dressed in the mode and his nails fashionably trimmed he promenades down odeon way ejaculating sycophants have made the city no longer habitable what outrages we endure in court from our persecutors why men nowadays go into office is a marvel to me how ungrateful the mob is although one is always giving giving if at the assembly a naked hungry vagabond sits next to him he complains of the outrage when he asks is a stop to be put to this ruin of our property by taxation for fets and navy how odious is this crew of demagogues theseus he says was the forefront of all this offending for out of twelve cities he brought the masses into one to overthrow the monarchies he met his just reward he was the first to fall a victim at their hands this is the way he talks to foreigners and to citizens of his own temper and party twenty seven the backbiter backbiting is a disposition to vilify others when the backbiter is asked who is so and so he begins like the genealogist with the man's ancestry his father's name was originally Sosius, but amongst the soldiers it became Sosostratus, and upon registration in the dim, it was again changed to Sosodemus. His mother was a Thracian, gentle blood, you see. At any rate, this jewel's name was Crinococcora. Women of that name are of gentle blood in Thrace, so people say. The man himself, with an ancestry like that, is a foul fellow fit for the whipping post in a company where his companions are maligning a man he of course takes up the attack and says 
for my part i hate him of all men he is a bad character as one may see from his face and as for his meanness it has no parallel and here's a proof his wife brought him a dowry of talents of money and yet after the birth of their first child he gave her but three pence a day for household expenses and forced her to bathe in cold water on the festival of poseidon in midwinter when he is seated with a group he loves to talk about an acquaintance who has just risen and gone and his biting tongue does not spare even the man's kinsfolk of his own relatives and friends he says the vilest things and even maligns the dead backbiting is what he calls frankness of speech democracy and freedom and there is nothing he enjoys so much twenty eight the avaricious man avarice is greedy love of gain when the avaricious man gives a dinner he puts scant allowance of bread on the table he borrows money of a stranger who is lodging with him when he distributes the portions at table he says it is fair for the laborer to receive double and straightway loads his own plate he engages in wine traffic and sells adulterated liquors even to his friend he goes to the show and takes his children with him on the days when spectators are admitted to the galleries free when he is the people's delegate he leaves at home the money provided by the city and borrows from his fellow commissioners he loads more luggage on his porter than the man can carry and provides him with the smallest rations of any man in the party when presents are given the delegates by foreign courts he demands his share at once and sells it at the bath he says the oil brought him is bad and shouts boy the oil is rancid and in its stead takes what belongs to another if his servants find money on the highway he demands a share of it saying lux gifts are common property when he sends his cloak to be cleaned he borrows another from an acquaintance and keeps it until it is asked for he also does this sort of thing. He uses King Frugal's measure with the bottom dented in for doling out supplies to his household and then secretly brushes off the top. He sells underweight even to his friend, who thinks he is buying according to market standard. When he pays a debt of thirty pounds, he does so with a discount of four shillings. When owing to sickness his children are not at school the entire month, he deducts a proportionate amount from the teacher's pay, and during the month of Antisarian he does not send them to their studies at all, on account of the frequent shows, and so he avoids tuition fees. If he receives coppers from a slave who has been serving out, he demands in addition the exchange value of silver when he gets a statement from the deem's administrator he demands provision for his slaves at public cost he makes note of the half-radishes left on the table to keep the servants from taking them if he goes abroad with friends he uses their servants and hires his own out yet he does not contribute to the common fund the money thus received when others combine with him to give a banquet at his house he secretly includes in his account the wood figs vinegar salt and lamp oil trifles furnished from his supplies if a marriage is announced in a friend's family he goes away a little beforehand to avoid sending a wedding present he borrows of friends such articles as they would not ask to have returned or such as if returned they would not readily accept 29. The Late Learner 
The late learner has a fondness for study late in life. He commits whole passages of poetry to memory when sixty years of age, but when he essays to quote them at a banquet, his memory trips. From his son he learns forward march, shoulder arms, bout face. At the Feast of Heroes he pits himself against the boys in the torch race, and, of course, when he is invited to the Temple of Hercules, he throws aside his mantle and makes ready to lift the steer that he may bend back its neck he goes to the wrestling ground and joins in the matches at the shows he stays one performance after another until he has learned the songs by heart if he is dedicated to sabasius he is eager to be declared the fairest if he falls in love with some damsel he makes an onset on her door only to be assaulted by a rival and hauled before the court he makes a trip to the country on a mare he has never before ridden, and, essaying feats of horsemanship on the road, he falls and breaks his head. He joins a boys' club, too, and entertains the members at his house. He plays ducks and drakes with his servant, and competes at archery and javelin-throwing with his children's tutor, and he expects the tutor, as though ignorant of these sports, to learn them from him. He wrestles at the baths, turning a bench nimbly about to create the impression that he has been well trained in the art, and if women happen to be standing near, he trips a dance, whistling his own music. 30. The Vicious Man Viciousness is love of what is bad. The vicious man is one who associates with men convicted in public suits, and who assumes that if he makes friends of these fellows, he will gain in knowledge of the world, and so will be more feared. Of upright men, he declares that no one is by nature upright, but that all men are alike, and he even reproaches the man who is honorable. The bad man, he asserts, is free from prejudice, if one will but make the trial, and while in some respects he admits that men speak truly of such a man, in others he refuses to allow it. For, says he, the fellow is clever, companionable, and a gentleman. In fact, he maintains that he never met so talented a person. He supports him, therefore, when he speaks in the assembly or is defendant in court, and to those sitting in judgment he's apt to say that one must judge not the man but the facts and he declares that his friend is the very watchdog of the people, for he watches out for evildoers, and he adds, we shall no longer have men to burden themselves with a care for the common weal if we abandon men like him. It's the vicious man's way to constitute himself the patron of all worthless scamps, and to support them before the court in desperate cases, and when he passes judgment, he puts the worst construction on the arguments of the opposing counsel. End of Part 3 End of The Characters of Theophrastus by Theophrastus